Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 17 Scarce any virtue found to resist the power of long and pleasing temptation. As I only studied my child's real happiness, the assiduity of Mr. Williams pleased me, and he was in easy circumstances prudent and sincere. It required but very little encouragement to revive his former passion, so that in an evening or two he and Mr. Thornhill met at our house, and surveyed each other for some time with looks of anger. But Williams owed his landlord no rent, and little regarded his indignation. Olivia, on her side, acted the coquette to perfection. If that might be called acting, which was her real character, pretending to lavish all her tenderness on her new lover. Mr. Thornhill appeared quite dejected at this preference, and with a pensive air took leave, though I own it puzzled me to find him so much in pain as he appeared to be, when he had it in his power so easily to remove the cause by declaring an honourable passion. But whatever uneasiness he seemed to endure, it could easily be perceived that Olivia's anguish was still greater. After any of these interviews between her lovers, of which there were several, she usually retired to solitude, and there indulged her grief. It was in such a situation I found her one evening, after she had been for some time supporting a fictitious gaiety. "'You now see, my child,' said I, "'that your confidence in Mr. Thornhill's passion was all a dream. He permits the rivalry of another every way his inferior, though he knows it lies in his power to secure you to himself.' By a candid declaration. Yes, papa, returned she, but he has his reasons for this delay, I know he has. The sincerity of his looks and words convince me of his real esteem. A short time, I hope, will discover the generosity of his sentiments, and convince you that my opinion of him has been more just than yours. Olivia, my darling, returned I, every scheme that has been hitherto pursued to compel him to a declaration has been proposed and planned by yourself nor can you in the least say that I have constrained you. But you must not suppose, my dear, that I will ever be instrumental in suffering his honest rival to be the dupe of your ill-placed passion. Whatever time you require to bring your fancied admirer to an explanation shall be granted. But at the expiration of that term, if he is still regardless, I must absolutely insist that honest Mr. Williams shall be rewarded for his fidelity." 
The character which I have hitherto supported in life demands this from me, and my tenderness, as a parent, shall never influence my integrity as a man. Name then your day, let it be as distant as you think proper, and in the meantime take care to let Mr. Thornhill know the exact time on which I design delivering you up to another. If he really loves you, his own good sense will readily suggest that there is but one method alone to prevent his losing you for ever. This proposal, which she could not avoid considering as perfectly just, was readily agreed to. She again renewed her most positive promises of marrying Mr. Williams in case of the other's insensibility, and at the next opportunity, in Mr. Thornhill's presence, that day month was fixed upon for her nuptials with his rival. Such vigorous proceedings seemed to redouble Mr. Thornhill's anxiety, but what Olivia really felt gave me some uneasiness. In this struggle between prudence and passion, her vivacity quite forsook her, and every opportunity of solitude was sought and spent in tears. One week passed away, but Mr. Thornhill made no efforts to restrain her nuptials. The succeeding week he was still assiduous, but not more open. On the third he discontinued his visits entirely and instead of my daughter testifying any impatience, as I expected, she seemed to retain a pensive tranquillity, which I looked upon as resignation. For my own part, I was now sincerely pleased with thinking that my child was going to be secured in a continuance of competence and peace, and frequently applauded her resolution in preferring happiness to ostentation. It was within about four days of her intended nuptials that my little family at night were gathered round a charming fire, telling stories of the past and laying schemes for the future. Busied in forming a thousand projects and laughing at whatever folly came uppermost. Well, Moses, cried I, we shall soon, my boy, have a wedding in the family. What is your opinion of matters and things in general? My opinion, father, is that all things go on very well and I was just now thinking that when my sister Livy is married to Farmer Williams, we shall then have the loan of his cider-press and brewing-tubs for nothing. "'That we shall, Moses,' cried I, and he will sing us Death and the Lady to raise our spirits into the bargain. "'He's taught that song to our Dick,' cried Moses, and I think he goes through it very prettily. "'Does he so?' cried I. "'Then let us have it. Where's little Dick? Let him up with it boldly.' My brother Dick, cried Bill, my youngest, is just gone out with Sister Livy. But Mr. Williams has taught me two songs, and I'll sing them for you, Papa. Which song do you choose, The Dying Swan, or The Elegy on the Death of a Mad Dog? The Elegy, child, by all means, said I. I have never heard that yet. And Deborah, my life, grief you know is dry, let us have a bottle of the best gooseberry wine to keep up our spirits. I have wept so much at all sorts of elegies of late, that without an enlivening glass I'm sure this will overcome me. And Sophie, love, take your guitar, and thrum in with the boy a little. An Elegy on the Death of a Mad Dog Good people all of every sort, give ear unto my song, and if you find it wondrous short, it cannot hold you long. In Islington there was a man, of whom the world might say, that still a godly race he ran, whene'er he went to pray. A kind and gentle heart he had to comfort friends and foes, the naked every day he clad when he put on his clothes. And in that town a dog was found, as many dogs there be, both mongrel puppy whelp and hound, and curs of low degree. 
This dog and man at first were friends, but when a pique began, the dog, to gain some private ends, went mad and bit the man. Around from all the neighbouring streets the wondering neighbours ran, and swore the dog had lost his wits to bite so good a man. The wound, it seemed, both sore and sad to every Christian eye, and while they swore the dog was mad, they swore the man would die. But soon a wonder came to light, that showed the rogues they lied. The man recovered of the bite, the dog it was that died. A very good boy, Bill, upon my word, and an elegy that may truly be called tragical. Come, my children, here's Bill's health, and may he one day be a bishop. With all my heart, cried my wife, and if he but preaches as well as he sings, I make no doubt of him. Thee, most of his family, by his mother's side, could sing a good song. It was a common saying in our country that the family of the Blenkinsops could never look straight before them, nor the Hugginsons blow out a candle, that there were none of the Groggums but could sing a song, or of the Marjorams but could tell a story. However that may be, cried I, the most vulgar ballad of them all generally pleases me better than the fine modern odes and things that petrify us in a single stanza. Productions that we at once detest and praise. Put the glass to your brother, Moses. The great fault of these elegiasts is that they are in despair for griefs that give the sensible part of mankind very little pain. A lady loses her muff, her fan, or her lapdog, and so the silly poet runs home to versify the disaster. That may be the mode, cried Moses, in sublimer compositions, but the Ranelagh songs that come down to us are perfectly familiar, and all cast in the same mould. Colin meets Dolly, and they hold a dialogue together. He gives her a fairing to put in her hair, and she presents him with a nosegay. And then they go together to church, where they give good advice to young nymphs and swains to get married as fast as they can. And very good advice, too, cried I. And I am told there is no place in the world where advice can be given with so much propriety as there. For, as it persuades us to marry, it also furnishes us with a wife, and surely that must be an excellent market, my boy where we are told what we want, and supplied with it when wanting. Yes, sir, returned Moses, and I know but of two such markets for wives in Europe, Ranelagh in England, and Fontarabia in Spain. The Spanish market is open once a year, but our English wives are saleable every night. You are right, my boy, cried his mother. Old England is the only place in the world for husbands to get wives, and for wives to manage their husbands, interrupted I. It is a proverb abroad that if a bridge were built across the sea, all the ladies of the continent would come over to take pattern from ours, for there are no such wives in Europe as our own. But let us have one bottle more, Deborah, my life, and Moses, give us a good song. What thanks do we not owe to heaven for thus bestowing tranquillity, health, and competence? I think myself happier now than the greatest monarch upon earth. He has no such fireside nor such pleasant faces about it. Yes, Deborah, we are now growing old, but the evening of our life is likely to be happy. We are descended from ancestors that knew no stain, and we shall leave a good and virtuous race of children behind us. While we live, they will be our support and our pleasure here, and when we die, they will transmit our honour untainted to posterity. Come, my son, we wait for a song. Let us have a chorus. But where is my darling Olivia? That little cherub's voice is always sweetest in the concert. Just as I spoke, Dick came running in. Oh, papa, papa, she is gone from us, she is gone from us. My sister Livy is gone from us for ever. Gone, child? 
Yes, she's gone off with two gentlemen in a post-chase, and one of them kissed her and said he would die for her, and she cried very much and was for coming back. But he persuaded her again, and she went into the chase, and said, Oh, what will my poor papa do when he knows I am undone? Now then, cried I, my children, go and be miserable, for we shall never enjoy one hour more. And, oh, may heaven's everlasting fury light upon him and his, thus to rob me of my child, and sure it will, for taking back my sweet innocent that I was leading up to heaven, such sincerity as my child was possessed of. But all our earthly happiness is now over. Go, my children, go, and be miserable and infamous, for my heart is broken within me. Father, cried my son, is this your fortitude? Fortitude, child? Yes, he shall see I have fortitude. Bring my pistols, I'll pursue the traitor. While he is on earth, I'll pursue him. Old as I am, he shall find I can sting him yet. The villain, the perfidious villain! I had by this time reached down my pistols, when my poor wife, whose passions were not so strong as mine, caught me in her arms. My dearest, dearest husband, cried she, the Bible is the only weapon that is fit for your old hands now. Open that, my love, and read our anguish into patience, for she has vilely deceived us. Indeed, sir, resumed my son after a pause, your rage is too violent and unbecoming. You should be my mother's comforter, and you increase her pain. It ill-suited you and your reverent character thus to curse your greatest enemy. You should not have cursed him, villain as he is. I did not curse him, child, did I? Indeed, sir, you did. You cursed him twice. Then may heaven forgive me and him if I did. And now, my son, I see it was more than human benevolence that first taught us to bless our enemies. Blessed be his holy name for all the good he has given, and for all that he hath taken away. But it is not, it is not a small distress that can wring tears from these old eyes that have not wept for so many years. My child, to undo my darling, may confusion seize. Heaven forgive me what I am about to say. You may remember, my love, how good she was and how charming, till this vile moment all her care was to make us happy. Had she but died, but she is gone, the honour of the family contaminated, and I must look out for happiness in other worlds than here. But, my child, you saw them go off. Perhaps he forced her away. If he forced her, she may yet be innocent. Ah, no, sir, cried the child. He only kissed her and called her his angel and she wept very much, and leaned upon his arm, and they drove off very fast. "'She's an ungrateful creature,' cried my wife, who could scarce speak for weeping, to use us thus. She never had the least constraint put upon her affections. The vile strumpet has basely deserted her parents without any provocation, thus to bring your grey hairs to the grave, and I must follow shortly.' In this manner, that night, the first of our real misfortunes was spent in the bitterness of complaint, and ill-supported Sally's enthusiasm. I determined, however, to find out our betrayer, wherever he was, and reproach his baseness. The next morning we missed our wretched child at breakfast, where she used to give life and cheerfulness to us all. My wife has before attempted to ease her heart by reproaches. Never, cried she, shall that vilest stain of our family again darken those harmless doors. I will never call her daughter more. No, let the strumpet live with her vile seducer. She may bring us to shame, but she shall never more deceive us. Wife, said I, do not talk thus hardly. 
My detestation of her guilt is as great as yours, but ever shall this house and this heart be open to a poor returning repentant sinner. The sooner she returns from her transgression, the more welcome shall she be to me. For the first time the very best may err, art may persuade, and novelty spread out its charm. The first fault is the child of simplicity, but every other the offspring of guilt. Yes, the wretched creature shall be welcomed to this hearth and this house, though stained with ten thousand vices. I will again hearken to the music of her voice, again will I hang fondly from her bosom, if I find but repentance there. My son, bring hither my Bible and my staff, I will pursue her wherever she is, and though I cannot save her from shame, I may prevent the continuance of iniquity. End of chapter. The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 18 The Pursuit of a Father to Reclaim a Lost Child of Virtue Though the child could not describe the gentleman's person who handed his sister into the post-chase, yet my suspicions fell entirely upon our young landlord, whose character for such intrigues was but too well known. I therefore directed my steps towards Thornhill Castle, resolving to upbraid him, and, if possible, to bring back my daughter. But before I had reached his seat I was met by one of my parishioners, who said he saw a young lady resembling my daughter in a post-chase with a gentleman whom, by the description, I could only guess to be Mr. Burchill, and that they drove very fast. This information, however, did by no means satisfy me. I therefore went to the young squire's, and, though it was yet early, insisted upon seeing him immediately. He soon appeared with the most open, familiar air, and seemed perfectly amazed at my daughter's elopement, protesting upon his honour that he was quite a stranger to it. I now, therefore, condemned my former suspicions, and could turn them only on Mr. Burchill, who, I recollected, had of late several private conferences with her. But the appearance of another witness left me no room to doubt of his villainy who averred that he and my daughter were actually gone towards the wells about thirty miles off, and there was a great deal of company. Being driven to that state of mind in which we are more ready to act precipitately than to reason right, I never debated with myself whether these accounts might not have been given by persons purposely placed in my way to mislead me, but resolved to pursue my daughter and her fancied deluder thither. I walked along with earnestness, and inquired of several by the way, but received no accounts, till, entering the town, I was met by a person on horseback, whom I remembered to have seen at the squire's, and he assured me that if I followed them to the races, which were but thirty miles farther, I might depend upon overtaking them. For he had seen them dance there the night before, and the whole assembly seemed charmed with my daughter's performance. Early the next day I walked forward to the races, and about four in the afternoon I came upon the course. The company made a very brilliant appearance, all earnestly employed in one pursuit, that of pleasure. How different from mine, that of reclaiming a lost child to virtue! I thought I perceived Mr. Burchill at some distance from me, but, as if he dreaded an interview, upon my approaching him he mixed among a crowd, and I saw him no more. 
I now reflected that it would be to no purpose to continue my pursuit farther, and resolved to return home to an innocent family who wanted my assistance. But the agitations of my mind and the fatigues I had undergone threw me into a fever, the symptoms of which I perceived before I came off the course. This was another unexpected stroke, as I was more than seventy miles distant from home. However, I retired to a little ale-house by the roadside, and in this place, the usual retreat of indigence and frugality, I laid me down patiently to wait the issue of my disorder. I languished here for near three weeks, but at last my constitution prevailed, though I was unprovided with money to defray the expenses of my entertainment. It is possible the anxiety from this last circumstance alone might have brought on a relapse, had I not been supplied by a traveller who stopped to take a cursory refreshment. This person was no other than the philanthropic bookseller in St. Paul's Churchyard, who has written so many little books for children. He called himself their friend, but he was the friend of all mankind. He was no sooner alighted, but he was in haste to be gone, for he was ever on business of the utmost importance and was at that time actually compiling materials for the history of one Mr. Thomas Tripp. I immediately recollected this good-natured man's red, pimpled face, for he had published for me against the deuterogamists of the age, and from him I borrowed a few pieces to be paid at my return. Leaving the inn, therefore, as I was yet but weak, I resolved to return home by easy journeys of ten miles a day. My health and usual tranquillity were almost restored, and I now condemned that pride which had made me refractory to the hand of correction. Man little knows what calamities are beyond his patience to bear till he tries them, as in ascending the heights of ambition which look bright from below, every step we rise shows us some new and gloomy prospect of hidden disappointment. So, in our descent from the summits of pleasure, Though the veil of misery below may appear at first dark and gloomy, yet the busy mind, still attentive to its own amusement, finds, as we descend, something to flatter and to please. Still, as we approach, the darkest objects appear to brighten, and the mental eye becomes adapted to its gloomy situation. I now proceeded forward, and had walked about two hours, when I perceived what appeared at a distance like a wagon, which I was resolved to overtake but when I came up to it, found it to be a strolling company's cart that was carrying their scenes and other theatrical furniture to the next village, where they were to exhibit. The cart was attended only by the person who drove it, and one of the company, as the rest of the players were to follow the ensuing day. Good company upon the road, says the proverb, is the shortest cut. I therefore entered into conversation with the poor player, and as I once had some theatrical powers myself, I disserted on such topics with my usual freedom. But as I was pretty much unacquainted with the present state of the stage, I demanded who were the present theatrical writers in vogue, who the Dryden and Otways of the day. I fancy, sir, cried the player, few of our modern dramatists would think themselves much honoured by being compared to the writers you mention. Dryden and Rowe's manner, sir, are quite out of fashion. Our taste has gone back a whole century. Fletcher, Ben Jonson, and all the plays of Shakespeare are the only things that can go down. How, cried I, is it possible the present age can be pleased with that 
antiquated dialect, that obsolete humour, those overcharged characters which are bound in the works you mention. Sir, returned my companion, the public think nothing about dialect or humour or character, for that is none of their business. They only go to be amused and find themselves happy when they can enjoy a pantomime under the sanction of Johnson's or Shakespeare's name. So then, I suppose, cried I, that our modern dramatists are rather imitators of Shakespeare than of nature. To say the truth, returned my companion, I don't know that they imitate anything at all, nor indeed does the public require it of them. It is not the composite of the piece, but the number of starts and attitudes that may be introduced into it that elicits applause. I have known a piece with not one jest in the whole, shrugged into popularity, and another saved by the poets throwing in a fit of the gripes. No, sir, the work of Congreve and Farquhar have too much wit in them for the present taste. Our modern dialect is much more natural. By this time the equipage of the strolling company was arrived at the village, which, it seems, had been apprised of our approach, and was come out to gaze at us for my companion observed that strollers always have more spectators without doors than within. I did not consider the impropriety of my being in such company, till I saw a mob gather about me. I therefore took shelter as fast as possible in the first alehouse that offered, and, being shown into the common room, was accosted by a very well-dressed gentleman, who demanded whether I was the real chaplain of the company, or whether it was only to be my masquerade character in the play. Upon informing him of the truth, and that I did not belong in any sort to the company, he was condescending enough to desire me and the player to partake in a bowl of punch, over which he discussed modern politics with great earnestness and interest. I set him down in my mind for nothing less than a Parliament man at least, but was almost confirmed in my conjectures when, upon my asking, what there was in the house for supper, he insisted that the player and I should sup with him at his house, with which request, after some entreaties, we were prevailed on to comply. End of chapter. The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 19 The Description of a Person Discontented with the Present Government and apprehensive of the loss of our liberties. The house where we were to be entertained, lying at a small distance from the village, our inviter observed that as the coach was not ready, he would conduct us on foot, and we soon arrived at one of the most magnificent mansions I had seen in that part of the country. The apartment into which we were shown was perfectly elegant and modern. He went to give orders for supper, while the player, with a wink, observed that we were perfectly in luck. Our entertainer soon returned. An elegant supper was brought in. Two or three ladies in an easy déshabille were introduced, and the conversation began with some sprightliness. Politics, however, was the subject on which our entertainer chiefly expatiated, for he asserted that liberty was at once his boast and his terror. After the cloth was removed, he asked me if I had seen the last monitor, to which, replying in the negative, "'What, nor the auditor, I suppose?' cried he. "'Neither, sir,' returned I. "'That's strange, very strange,' replied my entertainer. "'Now I read all the politics that come out, the Daily, the Public, the Ledger, the Chronicle, the London Evening, the Whitehall Evening, the Seventeen Magazines, and the two Reviews, 
and though they hate each other, I love them all. Liberty, sir, liberty is the Briton's boast, and by all my coal-mines in Cornwall I reverence its guardians. Then it is to be hoped, cried I, you reverence the king. Yes, returned my entertainer, when he does what we would have him, but if he goes on as he has done of late, I'll never trouble myself more with his matters. I say nothing, I think only. I could have directed some things better. I don't think there has been a sufficient number of advisers. He should advise with every person willing to give him advice, and then we should have things done in another guess manner. I wish, cried I, that such intruding advisers were fixed in the pillory. It should be the duty of honest men to assist the weaker side of our constitution, that sacred power that has for some years been every day declining and losing its due share of influence in the state. But these ignorance still continue the cry of liberty, and if they have any weight, basely throw it into the subsiding scale. How, cried one of the ladies, do I live to see one so base, so sordid, as to be an enemy to liberty and a defender of tyrants? Liberty, that sacred gift of heaven, that glorious privilege of Britain's. Can it be possible, cried our entertainer, that there should be any found at present advocates for slavery, any who are for meanly giving up the privileges of Britons? Can any, sir, be so abject? No, sir, replied I, I am for liberty, that attribute of God's glorious liberty, that theme of modern declamation. I would have all men kings. I would be a king myself. We have all naturally an equal right to the throne. We are all originally equal. This is my opinion, and was once the opinion of a set of honest men who were called levellers. They tried to erect themselves into a community where all should be equally free, but, alas, it would never answer, for there were some among them stronger and some more cunning than the others, and these became masters of the rest. For as sure as your groom rides your horses, because he is a cunninger animal than they, so surely will the animal that is cunninger or stronger than he sit upon his shoulders in turn. Since then it is entailed upon humanity to submit, and some are born to command and others to obey, the question is, as there must be tyrants, whether it is better to have them in the same house with us, or in the same village, or still farther off in the metropolis. Now, sir, for my own part, as I naturally hate the face of a tyrant, the farther off he is removed from me, the better pleased I am. The generality of mankind also are of my way of thinking, and have unanimously created one king, whose election at once diminishes the number of tyrants, and puts tyranny at the greatest distance from the greatest number of people. Now the great, who were tyrants themselves before the election of one tyrant, are naturally averse to a power raised over them, and whose weight must ever lean heaviest on the subordinate orders. It is the interest of the great, therefore, to diminish kingly power as much as possible, because whatever they take from that is naturally restored to themselves, and all they have to do in the state is to undermine the single tyrant by which they resume their primeval authority. Now the state may be so circumstanced, or its laws may be so disposed, or its men of opulence so minded, as all to conspire in carrying on this business of undermining monarchy. For, in the first place, if the circumstances of our state be such, as to favour the accumulation of wealth, and make the opulent still more rich, this will increase their ambition. An accumulation of wealth, however, must necessarily be the consequence, when, as at present, 
more riches flow in from external commerce than arise from internal industry. For external commerce can only be managed to advantage by the rich, and they have also at the same time all the emoluments arising from internal industry, so that the rich with us have two sources of wealth, whereas the poor have but one. For this reason wealth in all commercial states is found to accumulate, and all such have hitherto in time become aristocratical. Again, the very laws also of this country may contribute to the accumulation of wealth, as when by their means the natural ties that bind the rich and poor together are broken, and it is ordained that the rich shall only marry with the rich, or when the learned are held unqualified to serve their country as counsellors merely from a defect of opulence, and wealth is thus made the object of a wise man's ambition. By these means, I say, and such means as these, riches will accumulate. Now the possessor of accumulated wealth, when furnished with the necessaries and pleasures of life, has no other method to employ the superfluity of his fortune but in purchasing power. That is, differently speaking, in making dependence by purchasing the liberty of the needy or the venal, of men who are willing to bear the mortification of contiguous tyranny for bread. Thus each very opulent man generally gathers round him a circle of the poorest of the people and the polity abounding in accumulated wealth may be compared to a Cartesian system, each orb with a vortex of its own. Those, however, who are willing to move in a great man's vortex are only such as must be slaves, the rabble of mankind whose souls and whose education are adapted to servitude, and who know nothing of liberty except the name. But there must still be a large number of people, without the sphere of the opulent man's influence, namely that order of men which subsists between the very rich and the very rabble, those men who are possessed of too large fortunes to submit to the neighbouring man in power, and yet are too poor to set up tyranny for themselves. In this middle order of mankind are generally to be found all the arts, wisdom, and virtues of society. This order alone is known to be the true preserver of freedom, and may be called the people. Now it may happen that this middle order of mankind may lose all its influence in a state, and its voice be in a manner drowned in that of the rabble. But if the fortune sufficient for qualifying a person at present to give his voice in state affairs be ten times less than was judged sufficient upon forming the constitution, it is evident that greater numbers of the rabble will thus be introduced into the political system, and they ever moving in the vortex of the great will follow where greatness shall direct. In such a state, therefore, all the middle order has left is to preserve the prerogative and privileges of the one principal governor with the most sacred circumspection. For he divides the power of the rich and calls off the great from falling with tenfold weight on the middle order placed beneath them. The middle order may be compared to a town of which the opulent are forming the siege and which the governor from without is hastening the relief. While the besiegers are in dread of an enemy over them, it is but natural to offer the townsmen the most specious terms, to flatter them with sounds and amuse them with privileges. But if they once defeat the governor from behind, the walls of the town will be but a small defence to its inhabitants. What they may then expect may be seen by turning our eyes to Holland, Genoa or Venice, where the laws govern the poor and the rich govern the law. I am then for, and would die for, monarchy, sacred monarchy, for
for if there be anything sacred amongst man, it must be the anointed sovereign of his people, and every diminution of his power in war or in peace is an infringement upon the real liberties of the subject. The sounds of liberty, patriotism, and Britons have already done much. It is to be hoped that the true sons of freedom will prevent their ever doing more. I have known many of those pretended champions for liberty in my time, yet do I not remember one that was not in his heart and in his family a tyrant. My warmth, I found, had lengthened this harangue beyond the rules of good breeding, but the impatience of my entertainer, who often strove to interrupt it, could be restrained no longer. "'What?' cried he, "'then I have been all this while entertaining a Jesuit in Parson's clothes. But by all the coal-mines of Cornwall, out he shall pack, if my name be Wilkinson.' I now found I had gone too far, and asked pardon for the warmth with which I had spoken. "'Pardon?' returned he in a fury. "'I think such principles demand ten thousand pardons. "'What? Give up liberty, property, and, as the gazetteer says, "'lie down to be saddled with wooden shoes? "'Sir, I insist upon your marching out of this house immediately, "'to prevent worse consequences. Sir, I insist upon it.' "'I was going to repeat my remonstrances, "'but just then we heard a footman's rap at the door, "'and the two ladies cried out, "'As sure as death there is our master and mistress come home.' It seems my entertainer was all this while only the butler, who in his master's absence had a mind to cut a figure, and be for a while the gentleman himself, and, to say the truth, he talked politics as well as most country gentlemen do. But nothing could now exceed my confusion upon seeing the gentleman and his lady enter, nor was their surprise at finding company and good cheer less than ours. "'Gentlemen,' cried the real master of the house to me and my companion, my wife and I are your most humble servants, but I protest this is so unexpected a favour that we almost sink under the obligation. However unexpected our company might be to them, theirs, I am sure, was still more so to us. And I was struck dumb with the apprehensions of my own absurdity, when whom should I next see enter the room but my dear Miss Arabella Wilmot, who was formerly designed to be married to my son George, but whose match was broken off as already related. As soon as she saw me, she flew to my arms with the utmost joy. "'My dear sir,' cried she, "'to what happy accident is it that we owe such unexpected a visit? I'm sure my uncle and aunt will be in raptures when they find they have the good Dr. Primrose for their guest.' Upon hearing my name, the old gentleman and lady very politely stepped up and welcomed me with most cordial hospitality. Nor could they forbear smiling upon being informed of the nature of my present visit." but the unfortunate butler, whom they at first seemed disposed to turn away, was at my intercession forgiven. Mr. Arnold and his lady, to whom the house belonged, now insisted upon having the pleasure of my stay for some days, and as their niece, my charming pupil, whose mind in some measure had been formed under my own instructions, joined in their treaties, I complied. That night I was shown to a magnificent chamber, and the next morning early Miss Wilmot desired to walk with me in the garden, which was decorated in the modern manner. After some time spent in pointing out the beauties of the place, she inquired with seeming unconcern when last I had heard from my son George. "'Alas, madam,' cried I, "'he has now been near three years absent, without ever writing to his friends or me. Where he is, I know not.' Perhaps I shall never see him or happiness more. 
No, my dear madam, we shall never more see such pleasing hours as were once spent by our fireside at Wakefield. My little family are now dispersing very fast, and poverty has brought not only want, but infamy upon us. The good-natured girl let fall a tear at this account, but as I saw her possessed of too much sensibility, I forbore a more minute detail of our sufferings. It was, however, some consolation to me to find that time had made no alteration in her affections, and that she had rejected several matches that had been made her since our leaving her part of the country. She led me round all the extensive improvements of the place, pointing to the several walks and arbours, and at the same time catching from every object a hint for some new question relative to my son. In this manner we spent the forenoon, till the bell summoned us in to dinner, where we found the manager of the strolling company that I had mentioned before, who was come to dispose of tickets for the fair penitent, which was to be acted that evening, the part of Horatio by a young gentleman who had never appeared on any stage. He seemed to be very warm in the praises of the new performer, and averred that he never saw any who bid so fair for excellence. Acting, he observed, was not learned in a day, but this gentleman, continued he, seems born to tread the stage. His voice, his figure, and attitudes are all admirable. We caught him up accidentally in our journey down. This account, in some measure, excited our curiosity, and at the entreaty of the ladies I was prevailed upon to accompany them to the playhouse, which was no other than a barn. As the company with which I went was incontestably the chief of the place, we were received with the greatest respect, and placed in the front seat of the theatre, where we sat for some time with no small impatience to see Horatio make his appearance. The new performer advanced at last, and let parents think of my sensations by their own, when I found it was my unfortunate son. He was going to begin when, turning his eyes upon the audience, he perceived Miss Wilmot and me, and stood at once speechless and immovable. The actors behind the scene who ascribed this pause to his natural timidity attempted to encourage him, but instead of going on he burst into a flood of tears and retired off the stage. I don't know what were my feelings on this occasion, for they succeeded with too much rapidity for description but I was soon awaked from this disagreeable reverie by Miss Wilmot, who, pale and with a trembling voice, desired me to conduct her back to her uncle's. When we got home, Mr. Arnold, who was as yet a stranger to our extraordinary behaviour, being informed that the new performer was my son, sent his coach and an invitation for him, and as he persisted in his refusal to appear again upon the stage, the players put another in his place, and we soon had him with us. Mr. Arnold gave him the kindest reception, and I received him with my usual transport, for I could never counterfeit false resentment. Miss Wilmot's reception was mixed with seeming neglect, and yet I could perceive she acted a studied part. The tumult in her mind seemed not yet abated. She said twenty giddy things that looked like joy, and then laughed loud at her own want of meaning. At intervals she would take a sly peep at the glass, as if happy in the consciousness of unresisting beauty, and often would ask questions without giving any manner of attention to the answers. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton 
Chapter Twenty: The History of a Philosophic Vagabond Pursuing Novelty but Losing Content. After we had supped, Mrs. Arnold politely offered to send a couple of her footmen for my son's baggage, which he at first seemed to decline, but upon her pressing the request, he was obliged to inform her. That a stick and a wallet were all the movable things upon this earth that he could boast of. Why, I, my son, cried I, you left me poor, and poor I find you are come back. And yet I make no doubt you have seen a great deal of the world. Yes, sir, replied my son. But travelling after fortune is not the way to secure her, and indeed of late I have desisted from the pursuit. I fancy, sir, cried Mrs. Arnold. That the account of your adventures would be amusing. The first part of them I have often heard from my niece, but could the company prevail for the rest? It would be an additional obligation. Madam replied, "My son, I promise you the pleasure you have in hearing will not be half so great as my vanity in repeating them. And yet, in the whole narrative, I can scarce promise you one adventure, as my account is rather of what I saw than what I did." The first misfortune of my life, which you all know, was great, but though it distressed, it could not sink me. No person ever had a better knack at hoping than I. The less kind I found fortune at one time, the more I expected from her another, and being now at the bottom of her wheel, every new revolution might lift, but could not depress me. I proceeded therefore towards London in a fine morning. No way uneasy about tomorrow, but cheerful as the bird that carolled by the road, and comforted myself with reflecting that London was the mart where abilities of every kind were sure of meeting distinction and reward. Upon my arrival in town, sir, my first care was to deliver your letter of recommendation to our cousin, who was himself in little better circumstances than I. My first scheme, you know, sir, was to be usher at an academy. And I asked his advice on the affair. Our cousin received the proposal with a true sardonic grin. "Ay," cried he, "this is indeed a very pretty career that has been chalked out for you. I have been an usher at a boarding school myself, and may I die by an anodyne necklace, but I had rather be an under turnkey in Newgate. I was up early and late. I was browbeaten by the master, hated for my ugly face by the mistress, worried by the boys within." And never permitted to stir out to meet civility abroad. But are you sure you are fit for a school? Let me examine you a little. Have you been bred apprentice to the business? No. Then you don't do for a school. Can you dress the boys' hair? No. Then you won't do for a school. Have you had the smallpox? No. Then you won't do for a school. Can you lie three in a bed? No. Then you will never do for a school. Have you got a good stomach? Yes. Then you will by no means do for a school. No, sir. If you are for a genteel, easy profession, bind yourself seven years as an apprentice to turn a cutler's wheel, but avoid a school by any means. Yet, come," continued he. "I see you are a lad of spirit and some learning. What do you think of commencing author like me? You have read in books, no doubt, of men of genius starving at the trade. At present, I'll show you forty very dull fellows about town that live by it in opulence. All honest jog-trot men who go on smoothly and dully, and write history and politics and are praised. Men, sir, who had they been bred cobblers, would all their lives have only mended shoes but never made them.
Finding that there was no great degree of gentility affixed to the character of an usher, I resolved to accept his proposal, and, having the highest respect for literature, hailed the Antica Mata of Grub Street with reverence. I thought it my glory to pursue a track which Dryden and Otway trod before me. I considered the goddess of this religion as the parent of excellence. And, however an intercourse with the world might give us good sense, the poverty she granted I supposed to be the nurse of genius. Big with these reflections, I sat down, and finding that the best thing remained to be said on the wrong side, I resolved to write a book that should be wholly new. I therefore dressed up three paradoxes with some ingenuity. They were false, indeed, but they were new. The jewels of truth had been so often imported by others that nothing was left for me to import but some splendid things that at a distance looked every bit as well. Witness you powers what fancied importance sat perched upon my quill while I was writing. The whole learned world, I made no doubt, would rise to oppose my systems. But then I was prepared to oppose the whole learned world. Like the porcupine, I sat self-collected with a quill pointed against every opposer. "'Well said, my boy,' cried I. "'And what subject did you treat upon? "'I hope you did not pass over the importance of monogamy.' "'But I interrupt. "'Go on. "'You published your paradoxes. "'Well, and what did the learned world say to your paradoxes?' "'Sir,' replied my son, "'the learned world said nothing to my paradoxes. "'Nothing at all, sir. "'Every man of them was employed in praising his friends and himself, "'or condemning his enemies. "'And, unfortunately, as I had neither, I suffered the cruelest mortification, neglect. As I was meditating one day in a coffee-house on the fate of my paradoxes, a little man happening to enter the room placed himself in the box before me, and after some preliminary discourse, finding me to be a scholar, drew out a bundle of proposals, begging me to subscribe to a new edition he was going to give the world of Propertius, with notes. This demand necessarily produced a reply that I had no money and that concession led him to inquire into the nature of my expectations. Finding that my expectations were just as great as my purse, I see, cried he, you are unacquainted with the town. I'll teach you a part of it. Look at these proposals. Upon these very proposals I have subsisted very comfortably for twelve years. The moment a nobleman returns from his travels, a Creolian arrives from Jamaica, or a dowager from her country seat, I strike for a subscription. I first besiege their hearts with flattery, and then pour in my proposals at the breach. If they subscribe readily the first time, I renew my request to beg a dedication fee. If they let me have that, I smite them once more for engraving their coat of arms at the top. Thus, continued he, I live by vanity and laugh at it. But between ourselves I am now too well known. I should be glad to borrow your face of it. A nobleman of distinction has just returned from Italy. My face is familiar to his porter, but if you bring this copy of verses, my life for it you should succeed, and we divide the spoil. Bless us, George, cried I, and this is the employment of poets now. Do men of their exalted talents thus stoop to beggary? Can they so far disgrace their calling as to make a vile traffic of praise for bread? Oh, no, sir, returned he, a true poet can never be so base. For wherever there is genius, there is pride. The creatures I now describe are only beggars in rhyme. The real poet, as he braves every hardship for fame, so he is equally a coward to contempt. 
and none but those who are unworthy protection condescend to solicit it. Having a mind too proud to stoop to such indignities, and yet a fortune too humble to hazard a second attempt for fame, I was now obliged to take a middle course, and write for bread. But I was unqualified for a profession where mere industry alone was to ensure success. I could not suppress my lurking passion for applause, but usually consumed that time in efforts after excellence which takes up but little room when it should have been more advantageously employed in the diffusive production of fruitful mediocrity. My little piece would therefore come forth in the midst of periodical publication, unnoticed and unknown. The public were more importantly employed than to observe the easy simplicity of my style or the harmony of my periods. Sheet after sheet was thrown off to oblivion. My essays were buried among the essays upon liberty, eastern tales, and cures for the bite of a mad dog. While Philautos, Philalethes, Philelutaros, and Philanthropos all wrote better, because they wrote faster than I. Now, therefore, I began to associate with none but disappointed authors, like myself, who praised, deplored, and despised each other. The satisfaction we found in every celebrated writer's attempts was inversely as their merits. I found that no genius in another could please me. My unfortunate paradoxes had entirely dried up that source of comfort. I could neither read nor write with satisfaction, for excellence in another was my aversion, and writing was my trade. In the midst of these gloomy reflections, as I was one day sitting on a bench in St. James's Park, a young gentleman of distinction who had been my intimate acquaintance at the university approached me. We saluted each other with some hesitation, he almost ashamed of being known to one who made so shabby an appearance, and I afraid of a repulse. But my suspicions soon vanished, for Ned Thornhill was at the bottom a very good-natured fellow. "'What did you say, George?' interrupted I. "'Thornhill was not that his name. It can certainly be no other than my landlord.' "'Bless me!' cried Mrs. Arnold. "'Is Mr. Thornhill so near a neighbour of yours? He has long been a friend of our family, and we expect a visit from him shortly.' "'My friend's first care,' continued my son, "'was to alter my appearance by a very fine suit of his own clothes. "'And then I was admitted to his table upon the footing of half-friend, half-underling. "'My business was to attend him at auctions, to put him in spirits when he sat for his picture, "'to take the left hand in his chariot when not filled by another, "'and to assist at tattering a kip, as the phrase was, when we had a mind for a frolic.' Beside this, I had twenty other little employments in the family. I was to do many small things without bidding, to carry the corkscrew, to stand godfather to all the butler's children, and sing when I was bid. To be never out of humour, always to be humble, and, if I could, to be very happy. In this honourable post, however, I was not without a rival. A captain of marines, who was formed for the place by nature, opposed me in my patron's affections. His mother had been laundress to a man of quality, and thus he early acquired a taste for pimping and pedigree. As this gentleman made it the study of his life to be acquainted with lords, though he was dismissed from several for his stupidity, yet he found many of them who were as dull as himself that permitted his assiduities. As flattery was his trade, he practised it with the easiest address imaginable. But it came awkward and stiff from me, and as every day my patron's desire of flattery increased, so every hour being better acquainted with his defects, 
I became more unwilling to give it. Thus I was once more fairly going to give up the field to the captain, when my friend found occasion for my assistance. This was nothing less than to fight a duel for him, with a gentleman whose sister it was pretended he had used ill. I readily complied with his request, and, though I see you are displeased at my conduct, yet, as it was a debt indispensably due to friendship, I could not refuse. I undertook the affair, disarmed my antagonist, and soon after had the pleasure of finding that the lady was only a woman of the town, and the fellow her bully and a sharper. This piece of service was repaid with the warmest professions of gratitude. But as my friend was to leave town in a few days, he knew no other method of serving me but by recommending me to his uncle Sir William Thornhill, and another nobleman of great distinction who enjoyed a post under the government. When he was gone, my first care was to carry his recommendatory letter to his uncle, a man whose character for every virtue was universal, yet just. I was received by his servants with the most hospitable smiles, for the looks of the domestics ever transmit their master's benevolence. Being shown into a grand apartment, where Sir William soon came to me, I delivered my message and letter, which he read, and, after pausing some minutes, pray, sir, cried he, inform me what you have done for my kinsman to deserve this warm recommendation. But, I suppose, sir, I guess your merits, you have fought for him, and so you would expect a reward from me for being the instrument of his vices. I wish, sincerely wish, that my present refusal may be some punishment for your guilt, but still more, that it may be some inducement to your repentance. The severity of this rebuke I bore patiently, because I knew it was just. My whole expectations now, therefore, lay in my letter to the great man. As the doors of the nobility are almost ever beset with beggars, all ready to thrust in some sly petition, I found it no easy matter to gain admittance. However, after bribing the servants with half my worldly fortune, I was at last shown into a spacious apartment, my letter being previously sent up for his lordship's inspection. During this anxious interval I had full time to look round me. Everything was grand and of happy contrivance. The paintings, the furniture, the gildings petrified me with awe, and raised my idea of the owner. Ah, thought I to myself, how very great must the possessor of all these things be, who carries in his head the business of the state, and whose house displays half the wealth of a kingdom. Sure, his genius must be unfathomable. During these awful reflections I heard a step come heavily forward. Ah, this is the great man himself. No, it was only a chambermaid. Another foot was heard soon after. This must be he. No, it was only the great man's valet de chambre. At last his lordship actually made his appearance. "'Are you,' cried he, "'the bearer of this here letter?' I answered with a bow. "'I learned by this,' continued he, "'as how that—but just at that instant a servant delivered him a card, and, without taking farther notice, he went out of the room and left me to digest my own happiness at leisure. I saw no more of him till told by the footman that his lordship was going to his coach at the door.' Down I immediately followed, and joined my voice to that of three or four more, who came, like me, to petition for favours. His lordship, however, went too fast for us, and was gaining his chariot door with large strides, when I allowed out to know if I was to have any reply. He was by this time got in, and muttered an answer. 
half of which only I heard, the other half was lost in the rattling of his chariot wheels. I stood for some time with my neck stretched out in the posture of one that was listening to catch the glorious sounds, till, looking round me, I found myself alone at his lordship's gate. My patience, continued my son, was now quite exhausted. Stung with the thousand indignities I had met with, I was willing to cast myself away, and only wanted the gulf to receive me. I regarded myself as one of those vile things that nature designed should be thrown by into her lumber-room, there to perish in obscurity. I had still, however, half a guinea left, and of that I thought fortune herself should not deprive me. But in order to be sure of this, I was resolved to go instantly and spend it while I had it, and then trust to occurrences for the rest. As I was going along with this resolution, it happened that Mr. Cripps's office seemed invitingly open to give me a welcome reception. In this office, Mr. Cripps kindly offers all His Majesty's subjects a generous promise of thirty pounds a year, for which promise all they give, in return, is their liberty for life, and permission to let him transport them to America as slaves. I was happy at finding a place where I could lose my fears in desperation, and entered this cell, for it had the appearance of one with the devotion of a monastic. Here I found a number of poor creatures, all in circumstances like myself, expecting the arrival of Mr. Cripps, presenting a true epitome of English impatience. Each untractable soul at variance with fortune wreaked her injuries on their own hearts. But Mr. Cripps at last came down, and all our murmurs were hushed. He deigned to regard me with an air of peculiar approbation, and indeed he was the first man who for a month past talked to me with smiles. After a few questions he found I was fit for everything in the world. He paused a while upon the properest meaning of providing me, and slapping his forehead as if he had found it, assured me that there was at that time an embassy talked of from the Synod of Pennsylvania to the Chickasaw Indians, and that he would use his interest to get me made secretary. I knew in my own heart that the fellow lied, and yet his promise gave me pleasure. There was something so magnificent in the sound. I fairly, therefore, divided my half-guinea, one half of which went to be added to his thirty thousand pounds, and with the other half I resolved to go to the next tavern, to be there more happy than he. As I was going out with that resolution, I was met at the door by the captain of a ship, with whom I had formerly some little acquaintance, and he agreed to be my companion over a bowl of punch. As I never chose to make a secret of my circumstances, he assured me that I was upon the very point of ruin in listening to the office-keeper's promises, for that he only designed to sell me to the plantations. But, continued he, I fancy you might, by a much shorter voyage, be very easily put into a genteel way of bread. Take my advice. My ship sails to-morrow for Amsterdam. What if you go in her as a passenger? The moment you land, all you have to do is teach the Dutchman English, and I'll warrant you'll get pupils and money enough. I suppose you understand English, added he, by this time, or the juices in it. I confidently assured him of that, but expressed a doubt whether the Dutch would be willing to learn English. He affirmed with an oath that they were fond of it to distraction, and upon that affirmation I agreed with his proposal and embarked the next day to teach the Dutch English in Holland. The wind was fair, our voyage short, and after having paid my passage with half my movables, I found myself 
fallen as from the skies a stranger in one of the principal streets of Amsterdam. In this situation I was unwilling to let any time pass unemployed in teaching. I addressed myself, therefore, to two or three of those I met whose appearance seemed most promising. But it was impossible to make ourselves mutually understood. It was not till this very moment, I recollected, that in order to teach Dutchmen English it was necessary that they should first teach me Dutch. How I came to overlook so obvious an objection is to me amazing, but certain it is I overlooked it. This scheme thus blown up, I had some thoughts of fairly shipping back to England again. But happening into company with an Irish student who was returning from Louvain, our conversation turned upon topics of literature, for, by the way, it may be observed that I always forgot the meanness of my circumstances when I could converse upon such subjects. From him I learned that there were not two men in his whole university who understood Greek. This amazed me. I instantly resolved to travel to Louvain, and there live by teaching Greek, and in this design I was heartened by my brother-student, who threw out some hints that a fortune might be got by it. I set boldly forward the next morning. Every day lessened the burden of my movables, like Aesop and his basket of bread. For I paid them for my lodgings to the Dutch as I travelled on. When I came to Louvain I was resolved not to go sneaking to the lower professors, but openly tendered my talents to the principal himself. I went, had admittance, and offered him my services as a master of the Greek language, which I had been told was a desiderata in his university. The principal seemed at first to doubt my abilities, but of these I offered to convince him by turning a part of any Greek author he should fix upon into Latin. Finding me perfectly earnest in my proposal, he addressed me thus, you see me, young man, continued he, I never learned Greek, and I don't find that I have ever missed it. I have a doctor's cap and gown without Greek. I have ten thousand florins a year without Greek. I eat heartily without Greek, and in short, continued he, as I don't know Greek, I do not believe there is any good in it. I was now too far from home to think of returning, so I resolved to go forward. I had some knowledge of music with a tolerable voice and now turned what was once my amusement into a present means of subsistence. I passed among the harmless peasants of Flanders, and among such of the French as were poor enough to be very merry, for I ever found them sprightly in proportion to their wants. Whenever I approached a peasant's house towards nightfall, I played one of my most merry tunes, and that procured me not only a lodging, but subsistence for the next day. I once or twice attempted to play for people of fashion, but they always thought my performance odious, and never rewarded me, even with a trifle. This was to me the more extraordinary, as whenever I used in better days to play for company, when playing was my amusement, my music never failed to throw them into raptures, and the ladies especially. But as it was now my only means, it was received with contempt, a proof how ready the world is to underrate those talents by which a man is supported. In this manner I proceeded to Paris, with no design but just to look about me, and then go forward. The people of Paris are much fonder of strangers than have money than those who have wit. As I could not boast much of either, I was no great favourite. After walking about the town four or five days, and seeing the outsides of the best houses, I was preparing to leave this retreat of venal hospitality, when, passing through one of the principal streets, 
whom should I meet but our cousin to whom you first recommended me? This meeting was very agreeable to me, and I believe not displeasing to him. He inquired into the nature of my journey to Paris, and informed me of his own business there, which was to collect pictures, medals, intaglios, and antiques of all kinds, for a gentleman in London who had just stepped into taste and a large fortune. I was the more surprised at seeing our cousin pitched upon for this office, as he himself had often assured me he knew nothing of the matter. Upon my asking how he had been taught the art of a cognoscento so very suddenly, he assured me that nothing was more easy. The whole secret consisted in a strict adherence to two rules, the one always to observe that the picture might have been better if the painter had taken more pains, and the other to praise the work of Pietro Perugino. But, says he, as I once taught you how to be an author in London, I'll now undertake to instruct you in the art of picture-buying at Paris. With this proposal I very readily closed, as it was a living, and now all my ambition was to live. I went therefore to his lodgings, improved my dress by his assistance, and, after some time, accompanied him to auctions of pictures, where the English gentry were expected to be purchasers. I was not a little surprised at his intimacy with people of the best fashion, who referred themselves to his judgment upon every picture or medal, as to an unerring standard of taste. He made very good use of my assistance upon these occasions, for when asked his opinion he would gravely take me aside and ask mine, shrug, look wise, return, and assure the company that he could give no opinion upon an affair of so much importance. Yet there was sometimes an occasion for a more supported assurance. I remember to have seen him, after giving his opinion that the colouring of a picture was not mellow enough, very deliberately take a brush with brown varnish that was accidentally lying by, and rub it over the piece with great composure before all the company, and then ask if it had not improved the tints. When he had finished his commission in Paris, he left me strongly recommended to several men of distinction, as a person very proper for a travelling tutor. And after some time I was employed in that capacity by a gentleman who brought his ward to Paris, in order to set him forward on his tour through Europe. I was to be the young gentleman's governor, but with a proviso that he should always be permitted to govern himself. My pupil, in fact, understood the art of guiding in money concerns much better than I. He was heir to a fortune of about two hundred thousand pounds left him by an uncle in the West Indies, and his guardians, to qualify him for the management of it, had bound him apprentice to an attorney. Thus avarice was his prevailing passion. All his questions on the road were how money might be saved, which was the least expensive course of travel, whether anything could be bought that would turn into account when disposed of again in London. Such curiosities on the way, as could be seen for nothing, he was ready enough to look at. But if the sight of them was to be paid for, he usually asserted that he had been told they were not worth seeing. He never paid a bill that he would not observe how amazingly expensive travelling was, and all this, though he was not yet twenty-one. When arriving at Leghorn, as we took a walk to look at the port and shipping, he inquired the expense of the passage by sea home to England. This, he was informed, was but a trifle compared to his returning by land. He was therefore unable to withstand the temptation. So paying me the small part of my salary that was due, he took leave and embarked with only one attendant for London. I now, therefore, was left once more upon the world at large. 
but then it was a thing I was used to. However, my skill in music could avail me nothing in a country where every peasant was a better musician than I. But by this time I had acquired another talent, which answered my purpose as well, and this was a skill in disputation. In all the foreign universities and convents there are upon certain days philosophical theses maintained against every adventitious disputant, for which, if the champion opposes with any dexterity, he can claim a gratuity in money, a dinner, and a bed for one night. In this manner, therefore, I fought my way towards England, walked along from city to city, examined mankind more nearly, and, if I may so express it, saw both sides of the picture. My remarks, however, are but few. I found that monarchy was the best government for the poor to live in, and commonwealths for the rich. I found that riches in general were in every country another name for freedom, and that no man is so fond of liberty himself as not to be desirous of subjecting the will of some individuals in society to his own. Upon my arrival in England I resolved to pay my respect first to you, and then to enlist as a volunteer in the first expedition that was going forward. But on my journey down my resolutions were changed by meeting an old acquaintance, who I found belonged to a company of comedians that were going to make a summer campaign in the country. The company seemed not much to disapprove of me for an associate. They all, however, apprised me of the importance of the task at which I aimed. That the public was a many-headed monster, and that only such as had very good heads could please it. That acting was not to be learnt in a day, and that, without some traditional shrugs which had been on the stage, and only on the stage, these hundred years, I could never pretend to please. The next difficulty was in fitting me with parts, as almost every character was in keeping. I was driven for some time from one character to another, till at last Horatio was fixed upon, which the presence of the present company has happily hindered me from acting. End of chapter. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty-nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty-nine a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.